official screenwriting podcast, episode number 38. I'm Adam Levenberg. This week I'll be talking about the Great American Pitch Fest. It's coming up soon, June 20th through June 22nd in Burbank, California. I will also, in the What I'm Watching segment, be talking about The Normal Heart and Godzilla. I have a listener question, client corner, and then at the end of the episode, I'm going to give advice to people who are participating in the actual Pitch Fest segment of the Great American Pitch Fest. Because, as you may know, the Great American Pitch Fest is the biggest screenwriting conference, perhaps, in the world. And... On the first two days, they offer classes for people who are attending. Most of the classes you can get into for $25. Not $25 a class, $25 total. And I I think it's a public service that they offer. It's, It's really spectacular, the breadth of classes that they offer for screenwriters. And you can go to them Friday and Saturday for $25. On Sunday, they have the actual pitch fest part of the conference. And that's where 120 production companies send a representative. Sometimes it's an executive, sometimes it's an assistant. It really doesn't matter because whoever is representing that company, they're there to find projects. And you have the opportunity, if you're participating in that, to sit down with multiple companies and you have five minutes to get them to request your script. So at the end of the episode, I'm going to give some tips to people who are participating in that part of it. The tickets for that part are more expensive. However, I think it's a great opportunity if it's something you're interested in doing and trying. And what you're going to want to do is whichever tickets you're buying, you can use the discount code ALGAPF11. I guess that stands for Adam Levenberg Great American Pitch Fest 11. I don't know what the 11 is, but ALGAPF11, and you get 10% off any ticket that you buy. Now, initially, I had gone through the Pitch Fest schedule in order to give some recommendations as to what I thought the important classes were and what to avoid, and I'm not going to do that because as I look through all these classes... I don't think you'd be wasting your time with any of these classes. So, you know, whether or not you're looking for classes, I'm just going to look through some of these. Legal rights for screenwriters, uh, securing financing for indie films, power of the pitch, getting the audience into your character's shoes, paranormal 101 for screenwriters. So, like, they even have informational classes that apply to specific genres. I guess like there's probably like a cop thing somewhere else, like if you're writing a detective story. 13 Rules for Worthy Dialogue. That stuff is great. You know, this is the kind of stuff that you can definitely benefit from. And how much can you benefit from it? I've gone to these. If I wasn't presenting my own action screenwriting panel with the great Shane Black, uh, writer, director of Iron Man 3, uh, legendary screenwriter of Lethal Weapon, The Long Kiss Goodnight, The Last Boy Scout, and a bunch of other things, uh, and Ryan Engel, who wrote nonstop, we're going to be talking about action screenwriting at 11 a.m. on June 21st, and that's part of the $25 ticket. You can see me, and you know what? There's like four other great things happening at 11 a.m., so, you know, pick your poison. There's You can't go wrong. And I'm really excited to be part of it. 
And I know that there was a lot of competition among a lot of people like myself who work with screenwriters, even to just be able to present this year, because there's so much demand and there's a very limited amount of space and a limited amount of time that they have to provide panels for. So, again, I, I hope that you come and see me talking with Shane Black and Ryan Engel. But, you know, if you you can still use that discount code ALGAPF11 and go to something else at 11 a.m. Then come say hi to me because I'm going to be hanging out. I think I get a free ticket to the to the event because I'm presenting a, a panel there and I'm going to be going to these classes. I'm going to be learning some stuff. You can't know too much. And the other thing that I want to suggest to you is that there's a tendency with these classes to sometimes try to relate everything back to the script you're working on. And I want to suggest to you that that's not the best thing to do. I think I talk about that at the beginning of my book, where I say, please don't spend the entire time you're reading my book thinking about the script that you already wrote, because you're wasting your time doing that. This is about, like, taking you to the next level. That's what I said with the book. And same thing, I guess, with these classes, where you really want to go in with an open mind. You want to go in with a laptop, though, or you want to go in with, you know, a pad and paper and take copious notes. I've walked out of these things with, you know, pages full of notes. Sometimes they're legible sometimes not so much, but you can really learn a lot and be open to new perspectives. Don't spend the entire time trying to fix the thing that you already wrote in your mind. Just tune that out. And by the way, it's nearly impossible to do that. I know that. I know that it's really hard to do, but you're going to want to try to work on that when you go there. So at the end of the podcast, I'll be giving some advice for people who are participating in the Pitch Fest, where they'll be going one-on-one with multiple executives. I don't know how many pitches you get as part of that package. That would be a question for the Pitch Fest crew, but, and, and they're there to answer your questions. You can email them through their website, pitchfest.com. But again, if you're in Los Angeles, near Los Angeles, especially if you're not going to have to shell out for a hotel room, although I think it'd be worth it. Uh, but, you know, if you're in L.A., you should definitely take advantage of that, even if you're working on Friday. Like 25 bucks is totally worth the Saturday. You know, I'm, I'm just saying this because I think it's worth your time, not because I'm getting any sort of cut. Even I don't even think I get anything off that discount code on the coupon thing. It just shows that people are listening to my podcast and I'd like them to know that. All right, moving on to the small stories this week. Echo Light Cinemas, which is a financier and distributor of small, independent Christian films, has built a better mousetrap. You know, the way that a lot of these small Christian films have been distributed is that they're put into theaters, and then they organize with churches in order to sell tickets. And they basically bus people from church to the movie. They do what are called group sales. So if you look at the, the bottom of posters, especially for for inspirational slash Christian films, you'll often see for group sales, call this phone number because that's how they sell a lot of their tickets. Churches love going to these things together and you know, Hey, that's their community. It's a great to go to the movies with your community. And I think that's a a really cool thing, but they've built a better mousetrap because now they're going to be distributing directly to the churches. So I guess it's like, Hey, sermon at 10 heaven is for real at 1130. And you know, if you want to stay, you know, throw 10 bucks in the collection plate. I don't know exactly how that works. But, you know, a lot of churches are set up with screens and with audio. So it really doesn't make a difference. Why bust people away and give the theaters a cut of it when the churches can actually take that money and make some money to help them operate? Because, you know, a lot of churches don't have uh, dues. So I think that that's a really cool thing. And it's 
I think it's a cool thing, and I'm always fascinated by companies that look to tweak the traditional model. And the model of people going to see feature films in theaters is something that has existed for almost 100 years now. So they're doing something different, and props to them for that. Also, I owe an apology to my Twitter followers. If you follow me on Twitter at Starter Script, you can click on my tweets and read through my Twitter feed. Let me correct the record. To my knowledge, Rick Moranis did not audition for the lead in Basic Instinct. Didn't happen. It, I, I just made it up. My apologies. Now, if you listen to my podcast, you know that Emma Thompson did audition for the lead female role in Basic Instinct, which I just think is kind of strange and would have been very interesting casting, I guess. This week in what I'm watching, first up is Godzilla. I have a few very quick thoughts on this. Now, the interesting thing about Godzilla is that Warner Brothers wanted to do a movie on the cheap, sort of. And it's it represents a very interesting idea in terms of a, a film that probably did cost $150 million and still has the feeling of them trying to save money and nickeling and diming the production. Now, the, the interesting thing is that if you've seen the film, you know what I'm talking about, hopefully, because they hired a director, Gareth Edwards, who had experience directing a very, very, very small film with a lot of visual effects that I believe he did mainly on his laptop. And they said, okay, this guy knows how to work with a minimalist style. He pitched them his take on the material, and they said, yeah, let's go with this guy. Incidentally, he has now been hired to do the first Star Wars spinoff. So, as we know, the old Star Wars crew, including Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford, are all part of the J.J. Abrams uh, Star Wars film that's shooting now in London. Disney is also doing a spin-off film that is not part of the chronology of the J.J. Abrams project. So, in any case, um, what I was struck by with Godzilla was how little they showed and how often they look to minimize the visual effects that would be necessary. But, you know, at other times, they didn't. They gave you the full action sequences. And I guess that's sort of what we have, which is a studio that didn't want to spend 250 or $300 million, because every time Godzilla fights a monster in a big city and chaos erupts, you're talking about adding 10 to $25 million onto the budget. And they really pulled their punches a lot of the time and made that part of the overall approach to the film. I mean, we all know the Jaws rule of the less you show, the better. And they teased Godzilla a lot. He's not even in the first hour of the movie. He's not in the opening tension sequence. There's a sequence where there's a nuclear reactor meltdown and Brian Cranston's wife, played by Juliette Binoche, is stuck in, I don't know, she's stuck in some tunnel or something like that and having to run. And she literally has to outrun the cloud of toxic gases or whatever, and he's the one who's manning the door, and she says, you have to shut the door. You have to shut the door. I'm not going to make it. And he's got to basically kill his wife in order to save the city. And this has no Godzilla. There's no monster. Um, you know, we'll later find out that the meltdown was related to Godzilla, but for the purposes of for the purposes of this sequence, it's just the tension of a husband and wife at the center of this disaster. 
And they kept pulling little tricks in order to not have to show you everything or to have much lower resolution action scenes. So, for example, there's a moment where Godzilla is facing off in a fight with another monster. And we see the two of them kind of looking at each other and they're about to go. They're about to fight. And then it cuts to news footage. It cuts to a kid watching news footage of it. And of course, he's watching on a TV. We're now watching on the TV. And of course, we're looking at something which is incredibly low resolution and incredibly cheap to create. But again, the, the film does deliver later on. We do get our action sequences and an argument could be made how many action sequences do you want to see in a movie like this? How much do they actually have to show, especially because the monsters are so much bigger than the humans? They're not fighting the humans one-on-one. So, you know, I totally get what they were going for, and I, I think the film worked for what it was. Point of contention. Now, we were told in this film that two of these monsters that Godzilla is going to face off against, two of these monsters are going to breed. And these monsters are enormous. They're the size of skyscrapers. So we have this moment where the two of them finally meet. They're heading towards each other. They finally meet in the middle of a big city, and we don't get any monster fucking. Now, you know, it occurred to me that that would have been an awesome sequence. That would have been crazy. I hope at some point somebody at least thought of that. I I guess that, yeah, it's a PG-13 film, But you could have had these two monsters rolling around the city, destroying things. And, you know, there's lots of room for jokes in something like that. And it would have been completely fresh and unexpected. And it's the kind of idea that might not make it into a final film, but it definitely would make it into a pitch meeting. And it would definitely feel like a fresh, wild idea. Because, you know, what we end up seeing is that they hand each other, I believe, a barrel of nuclear waste or something like that. And that's the meetup between these two monsters. When I was really, expe- I, like, the setup was that they're going, they're meeting to mate. This is not like my brain going nuts and we were told they were going to mate. They finally show up, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to see some monsters fucking in the middle of a city and tearing buildings apart in the process as they're rolling around. Didn't happen. Hugely disappointed by that. Moving on. All right, so I watched The Normal Heart, which is an HBO film. The Normal Heart is based on a play from 1985 written by Larry Kramer, and it's a semi-autobiographical play based on his experiences at the start of the AIDS crisis epidemic in New York City. So he was there pretty much at ground zero when the AIDS crisis blew up. He was there when there were 50 diagnosed people, and, you know, within a couple of years, there were tens of thousands. And it's a really interesting movie. Mark Ruffalo does a great job playing Larry Kramer, who's an incredibly unsympathetic guy. I mean, he's a complete asshole. He can't control himself. And that's a really interesting thing that the film doesn't do that much with. You know, I was going to spend some time talking about some of the issues that this film has because I don't know exactly what they were trying to get across with this character in terms of screenwriting, which is different than playwriting. The character never has to learn to control himself. And in his primary relationship with his boyfriend, played by Matt Bomer, 
we don't get an issue in that relationship either. What's the problem? What's the sticking point? What is it that Matt teaches uh, Mark Ruffalo? We don't really get any of that. And I eventually had to sort of put the pen down, stop thinking about that stuff, because this was an adaptation of a play. The play is what it is. It's one man's experience at this time, trying to deal with a lot of other characters and their perspectives also. And it's just not going to necessarily hit all of the moments that a great screenplay might. And, you know, that's a decision that I guess Ryan Murphy made in conjunction with Larry Kramer. I believe that Ryan Murphy gave Larry Kramer screenwriting credit on this film. I believe I saw that in the closing credits, which I was surprised by because I know that Ryan Murphy was definitely greatly involved in the process of doing this. And I had read a couple of interviews where they talked about working together on it. So, so it's possible that either that was a contractual thing or that Ryan Murphy was just happy to provide that credit or that he felt like he was only helping Larry Kramer rethink his own play, but didn't feel the need to take credit. I just want to talk about one very specific thing, which is how quickly the movie gets going. And there's a coincidence that happens around the catalyst that to me was so ridiculous that thank God it didn't happen again. Cause I would have turned the movie off. And yet it's these types of coincidences that keep movies tight. So, I don't have any great answers for what they could have done instead, and maybe that's why I'll give it a pass. And it didn't become a problem. This wasn't something that the film kept doing over and over. But the film opens on Fire Island. It's 1981. It shows gay people having a lot of fun and being really liberated and enjoying themselves. And a character played by Jonathan Groff starts coughing, which means that he's going to die, like, immediately. You know that. Because anybody who starts coughing in a movie movie is going to die. So we see that as soon as this very short Fire Island sequence ends, we see Mark Ruffalo on a boat back to the mainland, and he's reading an article about this gay cancer that has struck like 20 people or something like that. He's just reading a New York Times article about it. Cut to, he meets with Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts is a doctor. She's the number one doctor for these patients who are getting this very, very strange disease. And she's meeting with him because she wants to get the word out about this. You know, this is before the internet. This is when it was all about just the news. That was it. There was newspapers and there was, you know, uh, news on television. And she wanted to get the word out about this disease that was out there. And she met with the Mark Ruffalo character and said, I need your help. I need your help getting the word out about this thing. And he said, I can't help you. I'm not the guy for this. I, you know, good luck with whatever you're doing. I don't quite get this whole thing, but hey, you know, have fun. And he refuses her, which refusal of the call is a really big deal, of course, with most characters. Um, usually in movies, you will find somebody who refuses, whether it's the hero initially refusing the mission, or sometimes it's the mentor that the hero needs in order to learn what they need to do, and the mentor refuses them. It can happen in a lot of different ways. In this case, she says to him, I need your help. I need you to get out there. And he says, no. And then immediately four of Mark Ruffalo's friends drag in Jonathan Groff, who's dying, and he dies, like, right there. I think they bring him back into an exam room, so you don't see him die. But the the point is that 
we have the main character saying, no, this, this really doesn't have anything to do with me. And then one of his very good friends is dragged through the door of the same doctor's office and drops dead. And of course now it's become personal. Now it's become real to him and now he has to act. So I think that, you know, again, these things run a very fine line and the, the fine line is how much coincidence can you have before it starts to feel ridiculous? I would say that in this case, it did feel a little bit ridiculous to me. It was just way too clean, but at the same time, you know, that's how a movie gets going after 11 minutes because I actually paused the DVR and said, Oh, okay. I'm 11 minutes into the movie. Our catalyst has happened. Our hero is now motivated. We know exactly what his mission is, which is to get the word out about this thing. And we're 11 minutes in. And, you know, this brings me to this week's client corner, which is going to be quick. This week's client corner, I had another client this week who had decided not to include a lot of really obvious things in his screenplay because he was so worried that his screenplay would sound too familiar, that there would be that, that these moments that we had discussed had already been seen in other things. You know, we talked a little bit about the backstory in Kingpin and American Pie and the way that, you know, you can have a character who's either destined for great things and then it gets all fucked up in a freak event that, you know, basically ruins that person's future and then we'll meet them 15 years later when their life is in shambles. Or it can be like the opening of American Pie where the humiliation that the character suffers is something that will continue throughout the film until he learns how to deal with it and how to deal with his life a little bit differently. So we talked about that and we talked about what his options were and he said, well, I thought of a kingpin and I had something like that, but I couldn't use it because it was in kingpin. And... I've talked about this a lot, but no matter how many times I do it, I still have more clients who come to me and say, well, I can't do that because it was done in something else. This is something I've never heard a professional writer say. And your film is going to be a compilation of moments from other movies. If you can come up with five original moments, you are golden. You are done. As I pointed out to the writer in four years the reader who's looking at your screenplay would have been in diapers when Kingpin was released, if they were even alive. So old cinema is there for you to borrow heavily from and to do something new with. You know, you don't just get to steal. We talked a little bit about Quentin Tarantino. And, you know, he steals a lot from historical cinema. But if you were to go back and watch the movies that he steals from, you'd probably get bored pretty damn quickly because they don't have the panache of a Quentin Tarantino film. And he's taking ideas and doing his own thing with them. And that's, that's really what screenwriting is all about. For this week's listener question, I'm going to read you an email that I got and give you the quick answer that I gave him. Quote, I was able to put my script into the hands of a major league producer in New York who loves my script. His future star and all his associates loved it as well. When I asked for a referral, he said, I hate agents, and if we end up making the movie, I will take care of it. He said he is busy doing a holiday movie with an actress, I'm not going to say who it is, uh, who was very important around the time that Nirvana was big on the radio. To give you an idea. All right. Uh, Meanwhile, I established a contact with an agent at CAA, and I want to send him the script. Would it be appropriate to do so, or should I wait for the producer to get back to me? Okay. So this is a no-brainer. First of all, this producer 
you know, the thing about producers is, and this is not demeaning the producer. This is not a lack of respect for this producer, but this producer has not had a theatrical feature film in theaters in over 20 years, had a very nice run for a while, made a lot of money and has actually, this writer did exactly what I suggest, which is if producers interested in your script, one of the things that they can do for you is get you representation. And if they can't do that, then it just suggests that the producer is not as powerful as they might claim to be, uh, because that's how people get represented by big agencies. Managers, producers, executives, they refer clients in, in cases like this. Hey, I want to make a movie with this guy. This script is awesome. You should read it. So in this case, our writer already has a relationship with CAA uh, and already has an agent who wants to read the script. So yes, yes, you send that script because the agent at CAA might be able to get you a much better producer. It might be able to get you a studio deal. And that would mean 10 times as much money in your pocket. Uh, and you know, if the agent feels like this producer is somebody who can help with this project and so be it, but getting top tier representation at a major agency is a thousand times more valuable than some schmuck who had a lot of movies in theaters 25 years ago. So that was my advice to him. All right, moving on to my advice for the people participating in the Pitch Fest. Again, the Great American Pitch Fest, you can look it up at pitchfest.com. Use offer code ALGAPF11 for 10% off of these tickets. I'm going to make this advice really short and sweet. Um, don't take it too seriously. Don't bring the weight of the world into this pitch. Don't feel like this is it for you because I've seen that. I've seen the nervousness and there's no reason to feel that. The chances are that you're going to be sitting across from somebody who's 25 years old, who's probably only done a couple of these things because these are really difficult things for executives to do. I've done like three or four of them in my life uh, as an executive and as an assistant and they're difficult because you're just dealing with very green writers all day long. You're just having people talking your face. It can be boring. Um, so, you know, you just want to go in there with a the good energy. And part of that is that you don't talk in somebody's face for five minutes because this is the worst type of pitch. The worst type of pitch is somebody who feels the need to tell you the entire plot of their movie and spends all five minutes just rambling through this speech, basically, where they basically read you a treatment that they've memorized of their script from beginning to end. And then they say, do you want to read it? And the chances are probably not. Um, you want to hook the person. You want to share what is the log line? Who is the audience for this film? What is the film tonally like? And what is the film structurally like? And you'll get some points by knowing the difference between those two things. So instead of speaking for five minutes straight, I would suggest limiting your pitch to between one and maybe two minutes. And during this time, you're going to want to talk about the following things. You will give them the logline, the one or two sentences as to what this story is about. And you'll talk about the setup. You'll talk about basically the first half of your script. Who is the hero? What is, the, what is their problem? What is their life like before the catalyst? What is the catalyst? How does their world turn upside down? Um, what is the mission that they're going to be going on? And who is the antagonist? Who is the villain? What's stopping them? What are the obstacles? And then you really want to spend some time with fun and games. You want to talk about the ideas that you've brought to the table as a screenwriter that would make somebody want to read this script. And 
And you can also talk a little bit about who is the audience for this film and what the film is tonally like and what it's structurally like. If you've used a, another project in order to help, uh, in order to help structure this screenplay, definitely mention that because it shows that you understand the difference between tone and structure. Um, and that's it. That's all you got to do. And read the person who's sitting across from you. Are they into it or not? And then let them ask questions. Let them talk to you. Talk to them. Ask them, you know, if you can tell that they're bored or if you can tell they're not into it or if you can tell they are into it, ask them, is there anything you're unclear about? Can you, do you have any questions for me? Um, have you read any scripts like this? Have you heard any ideas like this? What do you think of the idea? Talk to the person. And you have five minutes, you can take advantage of that. And, you know, if they mention a script that they read that's similar to it, say, hey, can I email you? Can you, can you possibly email it to me? So I, I definitely think that you just don't want to babble in somebody's face for five minutes because you can't convince somebody to request your script based on telling them the entire plot of your movie. Now, the one question I do get a lot of times is, should I give away the end of a great twist. If I have a great twist ending, should I use it as a hook to get them to request the script or should I just give it away? I'm going to give you my advice and my advice is also going to suggest that you ask some other people. So that's first and foremost. I do not think that I'm necessarily right here, but if it were me and I was pitching it, I would absolutely give away the pitch. And here's why. These people are going to be listening to things all day long and usually the twist is the most valuable part of a mystery screenplay. So in the case that you have something that really is spectacular, that really turns the world of this story upside down, you definitely want to share that because you may not have the opportunity to wow them at the end of reading your screenplay, which requires them to get it and to get to the end of it. And I, I strongly recommend that if you have anything of value, please share it. If you have funny jokes, if you have funny ideas, the fun and games are key. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about with fun and games, please read Blake Snyder, Save the Cat. Don't be worried they're going to take your idea. Don't be worried that you're going to say too much. You can't say too much if you're talking about really fun ideas. Now, here's the final piece of advice. Here's the final piece of advice. Once you sense that you've closed the deal, once you've sensed that this person is super interested and super engaged and they like your idea, stop talking. Because in my experience at a pitch fest, I've had writers pitching to me. And occasionally what ends up happening is the writer keeps talking. They keep pushing. They keep trying to sell and give me more details. But the more details they give, the more they talk themselves out of the sale. And the sale is just a script request, you know, but they give me enough details to say, oh, this person just said this. And that means that they probably don't know what they're doing and they've just sort of popped a balloon of interest and you don't want to do that. So, you know, it really is about being able to read people. And I think there's a lot of value in having a script looked at by a production company because you never know what kind of advice can come back. And there's so much benefit to that. Even if the script's not for them, you know, just sometimes somebody will look at a script and they'll say, well, you know, this isn't for us, but, and I have a whole section in my book, the starter screenplay where I talk about, what it is that they mean when they're passing on your screenplay, what it means when they say this or that or the other thing, uh, because there's a little bit of a translation that's necessary. Anyway, that's all for this week. Again, 
you can go to the Great American Pitch Fest. It is June 20th through the 22nd. I'll be talking to Shane Black and Ryan Engel on June 21st, and I may be there all two or three days. I don't know. You can buy my book, The Starter Screenplay, at Amazon and for your Kindle. And please go to my website, officialscreenwriting.com. You can hire me to read your screenplay or for a $99 concept consultation. I'm Adam Levenberg. Thanks for listening.